These truths and disciplines are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions which received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, have come down even to us, transmitted as it were from hand to hand. And this holy council, following the examples of the Orthodox fathers, receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence all the books both of the Old and the New Testament as also the said traditions as well as those appertaining to faith as to morals as having been dictated either by Christ's own word of mouth or by the Holy Ghost and preserved in the Catholic Church by a continuous succession. But if anyone receives not as sacred and canonical and knowingly and deliberately condemns the, the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema. Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, this holy council decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall, in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scriptures to his own senses, presume to interpret the scripture contrary to that which the Holy Mother Church has determined." whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. What I just read to you was a portion of canons from the Council of Trent. This was a council that met in the 16th century. It was a council of the Roman Catholic Church in response to the reformers. And as all of these reformers were trying to reform and change corrupt doctrines in the church, Rome commissioned this council to come together to further clarify what they believed and to condemn the theology of the Reformation. And let it be known that, that Roman Catholics today and the Council of Trent then made no bones about it. This was an infallible council whose authority is on equal level with Scripture. And in what we just read, it is said that Scripture is not enough for you. It's holy, it's great, but it's not enough because you see these, there are these traditions, these oral traditions which have come down through the succession of the church as if they were written, but they weren't. And you are called, your conscience has been bound to those traditions. And if you deny those traditions, you are anathema, which was a Greek word Paul used to say the curse of hell. And more so than that, you are further condemned if you dare think you have the right to take the sacred scriptures, which are not sufficient for you, and in your own power think that you have the ability to by yourself interpret and understand these without the permission of the church. Anyone who thinks they can do that, yet again, is anathema. That is what the reformers were dealing with, and that is what we are still dealing with in Roman Catholicism today. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this sermon. I have been looking forward to this sermon since I moved here. And let me tell you, God did something amazing. Today is Reformation Sunday. Today is the Sunday that some churches, not, all, not every church practices it, very few do. It's very important to me. Um, very few churches really recognize it. But this is the Sunday where churches are supposed to at least recognize, kind of like we have Christmas and Easter. This day has been dedicated to remembering the Protestant Reformation. And in this issue, the Reformation is so important to me and has been so important to me. I knew from the moment I moved here, and 
if for as long as God's grace keeps me here, that every Reformation Sunday, no matter what our sermon series is, we are going to take a break from the sermon series and we are going to preach a text that is relevant to the Reformation and relevant to the theology that divides us from Rome. But it is amazing, the sermon series that I have started in the pastoral epistles, I just inherited. I came down and said, uh, you know, Jesse's been doing this, let's just continue it. it. In a certain sense, it wasn't even really my choice. But what God did is providentially lined up our sermon series where today, the text in our sermon series that has landed on Reformation Sunday is the greatest text we could possibly preach on Reformation Sunday. So we're, in a certain sense, taking a break from our sermon series because I'm going to preach it with Reformation theology in mind, but in a very real sense, we are not taking a break from our sermon series today. If you would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As was mentioned, there was five solas that came out of the Protestant Reformation. There was sola scriptura, Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and solu Dei gloria. And what that chain meant was that the scriptures alone teach us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And, and the, the reformers argued that all Catholic doctrine re, rejects all five of those things. But Catholics only claim to reject two of those things, right? The, the Catholics don't go around saying, we don't care about the glory of God. Right? They, they believe into the glory of God alone, and they don't go around saying, we don't need grace to be saved. Grace isn't sufficient for us. Now, they say, we need grace to be saved. They say, sola gratia. But two of them that they formally reject, openly, publicly, proudly reject, is sola fide, meaning faith is not sufficient to justify you before a holy God. Works are mandatory. But perhaps, in my argument, the most important difference that divides us not just from Rome, but from any foreign religion is the issue of authority. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, in my mind, was without a doubt the most important issue of the Protestant Reformation, and it's the most important issue with any human being you come into contact with. Meaning, if we're going to have any discussion about that which is true, any discussion about God himself, the question needs to be answered, where do we know God has spoken? Where do I turn to to find out these answers? You see, there was... There, there's a lot of theology that separates us from Rome. And there was a lot of theology that separated the reformers from Rome. But what they almost all boiled down to was if we disagree over communion, if we disagree over salvation, if we disagree over eschatology, why do we disagree? And in the Reformation, it was because Roman Catholics were not limiting themselves to Scripture. They had a variety of other infallible sources that were allowed to tell them what to think. So you couldn't really discuss justification, you couldn't really discuss communion, because we're not even coming from the same place. We're both appealing to different authorities. This is, without a doubt, the most important issue when it comes to religion in general, and it was the most important issue of the Protestant Reformation, is the Bible alone, by itself, to communicate all that God has for me. Or are there other infallible churches, other infallible traditions, other infallible writings that I need to complete my view of God? And today we are going to look at what Paul's opinion on this subject matter is. We are going to look at Paul's opinion on the subject matter is. And so we are going to look at what the Protestant reformers called sola scriptura, scripture alone. And here's the outline of the sermon today. We're going to define it. We're going to demonstrate it. And then we're going to defend it. So I'm going to give you a brief definition of what sola scriptura is. 
I'm going to show you in Scripture why the Reformers believed it, and then I'm going to answer common objections to it. We're going to define it, we're going to demonstrate it, and then we are going to defend it. So what is sola scriptura? What do we mean by that Latin phrase? Well, let me give you two theologians I admire, one from a Presbyterian background and one from a Baptist background. Robert Godfrey said this, sola scriptura means that all things necessary for salvation and concerning faith and life are taught in the Bible clearly enough for the ordinary believer to find it there and understand it. So his definition is if there's anything you need to know to be saved, if there's anything you know to be a Christian, if there's anything you need to know in order to live a godly life, it's in the Bible. The Bible's not lacking anything that you need for godliness, for a proper life, and for salvation. And not only is it in the Bible, but it's in the Bible clearly enough that the ordinary person can read the Bible and get it and not have to defer to the opinion of an institution or a church to tell them what it means. So his definition is everything you need to be saved, to know God, and to live a godly life are, is somehow in the scriptures, and it's in the scriptures clearly enough for you to find it. John MacArthur put it this way, all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is, is taught either explicitly or implicitly in the scripture. If you need to know anything that's true for salvation or anything that's true to live in godliness, it's somewhere in the scripture. We are not dependent upon anything outside of Scripture to tell us what God has said. So essentially, if we're boiling it down, here's what we're saying. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible is every human being's highest authority. There is nothing on an equal plane with it. It is above every authority, every institution, and it's our only infallible authority. Infallibility means it cannot err. It can't be wrong. Every other institution in the world, no matter how good and holy it is, can make mistakes. The Bible is the only set of doctrines, sets of revelation we have, which is infallible. It cannot make mistakes. Nothing else in this world is infallible other than Scripture. And what this is also saying is that the Bible is sufficient to save us. You can't you read through the New Testament and still be lacking something you need in order to know God right and be saved. The Bible is your highest authority. The Bible is your only infallible authority. The Bible is sufficient to save you and the Bible is sufficient to tell you how to please God. Is God pleased with this behavior or this behavior? Is God pleased if I think like this or is he pleased if I think like this? The Bible is sufficient to answer those questions. The reformers called it the rule of faith. In, in, in the confession that we read, it called it the rule of faith, which is the measurement of our faith. In other words, what does the Christian life look like? What are we to believe? How are we to behave? No other inf uh, infallible authority tells you that other than the scriptures. The written word of God is your highest authority, your only infallible authority, and it is sufficient to save you, and it is sufficient to tell you how to please God. But perhaps it would help to further clarify by saying what, what this doctrine is not saying and often is mischaracterized as saying. Sola scriptura is not the same thing as solo scriptura. Sola scriptura is not the same thing as solo scriptura. So in other words, the Bible being your highest authority does, is not the same thing as the Bible being your only authority. There are other legitimate authorities in your life that you and I are called to submit to. We are called to believe. We are called to obey. 
And, and, and the funny thing is it's the Bible itself that teaches us this. So, for example, uh, it would do you no good if you were speeding down the highway and police officer pulled you over and police officer came up to you and said, uh, I caught you speeding and here's a ticket. If you were to take that ticket, what do you think would happen if you were to take that ticket and say, officer, I just want you to know that you are not my authority. The word of God alone is my authority. So unless you can prove to me from the word of God that I was speeding, I have no obligation to pay this fine. No, that's an abuse of sola scriptura. The Bible itself in Romans 13, in Romans 13, it tells us that the government is a legitimate official. It's a deacon that God instituted. We are called to obey. The the government is a legitimate authority over you. We see also in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Hebrews 13 that church authorities are legitimate authorities. Hebrews says to obey your leaders, especially those who taught the word of God to you. Within authority, we have within the church we have what's called ecclesiastical authority, church membership. This is why we do church membership. It's you saying, "I submit myself to obey the church, to obey my leaders," as Hebrews and Ephesians says. So the the, the authority of the church is a real, legitimate authority, and this extends to some degree into church history. Church history has a bearing of authority over us. It's it's a very dangerous thing to believe things about God that no one for two thousand years has believed. That's a very dangerous thing. So that has somewhat of a legitimate authority on us. In Ephesians chapter five, children are called to obey their parents and wives are called to submit to their husbands. So the family unit is a legitimate authority that God holds us accountable to. None of your children are allowed to simply tell you, listen, unless you can show me the Bible verse that says thou shalt clean your room, I am under no obligation to clean my room. Sola Scriptura. No, we are called to obey these authorities. Even in the book of Romans and 1 John, we have a hint that our own conscience is an authority. We are not to sin against our own convictions and conscience. So you even have a sort of self-governing authority. So there are lots of authorities and there's lots of places you ought to turn to to help you understand scripture. There are places that the scriptures command us to go and to follow those authorities. So there are lots of legitimate authorities in this world. But what sola scriptura means is that the Bible is above them all. If your parents do command you to do something which is absolutely unbiblical, then you do have reason to say no. And just as Peter and the apostles early on in the book of Acts, as they were met by their governing authorities and told you are not allowed to preach the word anymore, you know what they said? You see to it what seems right to you, but as for us, we must obey God, not men. If a police officer asks you to do something entirely unbiblical, you have no obligation to do it. Sola Scriptura does not mean there aren't other authorities or there aren't other institutions out there to help us in our Christian life. The Bible says there's those things. But above them all is the Scriptures. There is nothing on par with the Scriptures. The government is not infallible. Your parents are not infallible. Your husband is not infallible. Church history, church historians are not infallible. The scriptures alone have that unique authority by which they judge everything else. Uh, And another important thing what we mean when we talk about scripture, sola scriptura, is what we don't mean is that scripture is an exhaustive revelation of all possible knowledge. Uh, So, for example, Drew, you are redoing your kitchen, correct? And if it's fair, I don't mean to put you on the spot. But it's fair, I've heard you over the past few weeks sort of express maybe some insecurity as to whether you're doing it correctly. Is that a fair statement? Well, obviously we have a church full of pagans. A bunch of heathens, these people. 
Because I've heard you talk about trying to make home improvements and not quite sure, you know, what to, you know, if you're, if you're doing it right. And not one of them said, brother, don't you believe the scriptures? Why don't you just open up your Bible and go to the chapter that tells you how to put tile in your kitchen? Do we believe the scriptures are sufficient or not? That's a bit of a silly example, but you get the point. The Bible is not an exhaustive revelation of all knowledge. There are lots of true things that are not in the Bible. You will not find the chemical makeup of water in the Bible. The Bible won't teach you how to build a house. The Bible won't teach you a lot about science. The Bible does not teach us a lot of things. The purpose of Scripture was not to tell us every possible true thing. There's lots of truth to be found outside the Bible. Now, the Bible does speak to every area of life. It has authority over area, every area of life. It might not teach a brain surgeon how to do brain surgery, but a brain surgeon is still required to utilize his job to the glory of God, and he only knows how to do that by the scriptures. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have brain surgery, who would you rather have, the person with the medical degree and the training or the guy with the PhD in theology? The Bible doesn't tell you how to do brain surgery. The Bible is not an exhaustive revelation of all truth. But as it pertains to salvation and godliness, the Bible is sufficient. Does it tell you how to do brain surgery? No. But does it tell the brain surgeon how to live a holy, godly life and get to heaven one day? Yes. As it pertains to the Christian life, as it pertains to Christian doctrine, as it pertains to how to live a life pleasing to God, the scriptures are entirely sufficient. That is what sola scriptura means. That's our definition. So let's demonstrate it from our text. If you would, open, or I hope you already are open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin in, verses 14, in verse 14 and finish through verse 17. Remember the context? Paul has just got done from last week telling Timothy, you're going to be persecuted, the times are going to get worse, and there's going to be a lot of evil people all around you. So here's his instructions to Timothy in light of that. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." So verses 14 and 15, in light of this present wickedness, in light of all this present false theology, Paul here commands Timothy to, you just stay the course. We talked about this last week. Keep calm and carry on. You just carry on. And what is Timothy carrying on at? Well, he's carrying on in his faith. Paul says not to stray from the faith. This is the faith that you grew up with. This is the faith that you've always had, right? From You know whom you've learned it from, verse 14. And how from child you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. So Paul tells Timothy, where's your lighthouse in this dark world? When everyone's evil, when everyone's wicked, when everyone's believing false theology and being deceived and, and, and deceiving others, how do you know you're not deceived? What do you turn to? He says, well, you turn to what you've always turned to, which are the sacred writings. Not traditions, not church authority, the writings. The, the, the Greek word here is where we get our word autograph from, the graphe to the sacred graphe, to the sacred writings. And then he goes to tell him what these sacred writings are capable of doing. These sacred writings, which are, continuing in verse 
15, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we already see half of Sola Scriptura demonstrated here. Paul is saying the writings, the sacred writings which you have, they are capable to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures, the sacred writings, are sufficient to save you. We can at least know that right now with confidence. That it's not as if a person can read through the scripture, understand it, but they forgot about the church tradition. So they still don't know what they need to know. They forgot about the church authority over in Salt Lake City. So they still don't know. They don't know about all these modern day prophets and their new revelation. So they can't be saved. They're missing information. No, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. If nothing else, we need to understand that there is nothing outside of the scriptures you need to be saved. The scriptures and the scriptures alone are sufficient to save your soul in Christ Jesus. But Paul goes on, he goes on to tell us how is it that the scriptures are so sufficient and so powerful. And he says in verse 16, because all scripture, now notice he just got done telling Timothy to cling to the sacred writings he grew up with. So he only has the Old Testament in mind there. And then he now broadens it. All scripture, old or new, anything that is scripture, anything that, that, that Paul had given Timothy as scripture, what makes it scripture and what makes it so beneficial is this. All scripture is, and in the Greek word there is theonustos, theopneustos, which means God breath. A, a literal translation would say God breathed, or as the ESV says, breathed out by God. Some of your translations probably use the word inspired. All scripture is inspired by God. Now that's not a bad rendering of the word because of what we mean by the word inspired, but technically, if you just look at the technical meaning of the word, that's not a good word to use. Because the inspiration, the, the, the idea there is that God is sort of filling something up. The Greek word here is more of an expiration. It's an exhaling of God. Uh, so God is not taking words and then inspiring them. He's not taking a book and then giving it inspiration. God is actually producing it. The, the, the Bible, the, being God-breathed, it's as if, you know, if you were to put your hand right close to your mouth when you talk and you can feel the breath from your words hit the palm of your hand, that's what Paul says scripture is. It's the very breath of God. It's God's very word. And that's why the scriptures carry with it the same authority that God does. That's why the scriptures are the highest authority because it's God's word and there's nothing above God. That's why scriptures are infallible because it's God's word and God can't err. Scripture is profitable. Scripture can save you. Scripture is sufficient for you because it is God's word. It is the very breath of God. And because it is breathed out by God, it is therefore what? Profitable for teaching. So if you need to learn something about God, go to the scriptures. The scriptures teach us who God is. It's profitable for reproof. So if Timothy needs to know whether these people in their church, is this behavior wrong? Do I need to reprove them and condemn them? What, what, what prepares Timothy to do that? What gives him authority to do that? The God-breathed scriptures. So to teach and to reprove. But once I've reproved someone, that's not enough. They want to know, okay, well, if this is wrong, then I need to correct that. I need to know what's right. And the scriptures are profitable for correction. Teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. 
So the scriptures, Paul is telling Timothy here, in, in, in a wicked and dark and lost world, you've got God-breathed scriptures which can save you. And not only can they save you, they can also teach you about God. They can also tell you what's sinful. And then they can then tell you what's right. And then by studying them, learning them, and practice them, you become more righteous. So in other words, here's what Paul is telling Timothy. If you want to know who God is, how to get saved, and how to live a righteous life, go to the only thing which is his very breath, the scriptures. Your church authorities are not God-breathed. Church history is not God-breathed. Salt Lake City, Rome, New York, none of those institutions are God-breathed. The scriptures, the sacred writings, scriptures alone are the very breath of God and that's what makes them capable of teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And then he further hammers this home in verse 17, so that the man of God, which is basically a, a phrase for a pastor, the man of God was what the prophets were called in the Old Testament, and it's what Paul constantly calls Timothy in his writings, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's, that's, guys, that's all of life. Every good work. Is, is, is it a good work to teach someone true theology? Is that a good thing to do? Yes. So the scriptures have to be able to teach Timothy how to teach true theology. If there's true theology outside of scripture that Timothy has to be teaching, then the scriptures cannot make the man of God ready for every good work. Because there's some good theology that needs to be taught in a good way that the scriptures don't contain. But no, he says the scriptures are able to equip you for every good work. If there's anything you want to do to please God, whether it's what you believe, what you think, how you behave, the scriptures equip you for that task. The scriptures equip you for that task. What this also does, just briefly, this reminds us that, honestly, to disobey the scriptures is to disobey God. And that's why I take such issue with this, the, this notion that I see so prevalent in so many people today that is, is, is become known as red-letterism. You know, people will say things like, well, you know, you, you, you think homosexuality is wrong, but tell me, where did Jesus ever speak on that issue? Where did Jesus ever talk about this? Where did Jesus ever talk about that? What are they saying? In my Bible, the words of Jesus are God-breathed. But the black words are not. But Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say only Jesus is God-breathed. He said all scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, Isaiah to Paul, God-breathed. The red words weren't read in the Greek manuscripts. Every scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. And they are profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for condemnation, for correction, for conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. This is faith in works, faith in morals. This is all of life. Everything you think, everything you do, the scriptures tell you what God wants you to think and what he wants you to do. They are sufficient for all of life. I summarize it this way. The scriptures contain all a person needs to know for theology, salvation, and godly living because they are God's word. The scriptures contain all a person needs to know for theology, salvation, and godly living because they are God's word. The God-breathed scripture. Well, if that doesn't sound very convincing, let me help you by telling you what some of the historic objections have been to utilizing this passage to teach us that the scriptures are, in fact, sufficient. And I'm just going to, this won't be an exhaustive list of, of every single objection, but these are the four, without a doubt, the most commonly used ones. And, and I'm going to kind of 
structure these from the least used to the most used. But, but one thing you'll often hear is this. Great, the scriptures equip us for every good work and they equip us for all true theology, but here's the problem. How do you know you're interpreting them correctly? You can open up the Bible and not understand what it means. So even if the Bible's got all this great information, it's not sufficient because you need someone else to tell you what it means. You don't know what the Bible says. You can think you know, but you don't have authority to say, well, this is what the Bible says. I know this for certain. So you obviously need some kind of infallible institution or infallible pope or infallible council. You need other people who, have, who are also God-breathed who can tell you what the scriptures mean. So you see, we need something else. Uh, here's the problem with that. First, let me just give you a philosophical problem. That doesn't actually answer the question. All it does is what we call kicking the can down the road. Because here's the issue. Let's say we, 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 we do claim somebody is an infallible interpreter of Scripture, whether it's the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church or the modern-day prophets in Salt Lake City with the Mormons or the, uh, in New York with the Jehovah's Witnesses, Watchtower, Bibles, and Tract Society. All of these institutions claim to be infallibly speaking, inspired by God, capable of telling you the authoritative interpretation of the word and that you're not allowed to interpret the word without their approval and consent. No matter which one we choose, guess what the problem is? They have to communicate their interpretation of scripture to us and then guess what we have to do with that communication? We have to interpret it. We have to interpret it. The same brain that I bring to my Bible, and they say, well, you, your brain, you can't know what the Bible means, is the same brain I bring to their interpretation of the Bible. So if I can't know what the scripture means, how can I know what they say the scripture means? I have to interpret them the same way I have to interpret the Bible. So it looks like we need a pope to interpret the pope. But I still need to interpret that pope. So we need a pope to interpret the pope to interpret the pope to interpret the Bible. But I need to interpret that pope. So we need the pope to interpret the pope to interpret the pope to interpret... It's this endless... At the end of the day, no matter who's infallible, our brains have to interpret it. So the fact that I can make mistakes in my interpretation is not an argument against the sufficiency of Scripture. That's like, that's like telling someone who's never played hockey before, this hockey stick is not capable of scoring goals because you don't know how to use it. The hockey stick is perfectly sufficient. Just because you don't know how to use it doesn't mean the hockey stick isn't enough. The Bible is enough whether we're interpreting it right or not. And to simply say you need an interpreter doesn't solve the problem because how do I know I'm interpreting the interpreter right? At the end of the day, we are left with interpretation and there's no getting around it. But here's what I want us to see. The verse itself speaks against this. The verse itself assumes what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. What does that mean? That perspicuity means clarity. That the Scriptures are generally clear. It doesn't mean that there's no confusing passages. It doesn't mean that there's no ambiguities anywhere. But generally speaking, a person can read the Scriptures and understand it. Or read the scriptures and have teachers help them understand it. And here's why we say that. Because notice Paul throws Timothy at the mercy of the scriptures. And never once does he insinuate that Timothy is incapable of understanding them. Quite the opposite. First he says, look again at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. Who did Timothy learn the scriptures from? Remember what Paul said earlier? Eunice and Lois. His mother and his grandmother. Are they an infallible institution? No. They're just people. But Paul seemed to trust 
their ability to understand the Old Testament and teach their son. Paul did give Timothy an interpreter, but it wasn't an infallible one. It wasn't a pope. He said, hey, your mother and your grandmother, they understood the scriptures really well and they passed it down to you. Keep believing that. See, Paul thought Eunice and Lois were perfectly capable of understanding the scriptures and teaching their children. They didn't have a pope. And and notice again, the whole passage is verse 15, and how from child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. What is it that's giving Timothy his wisdom? A council? A pope? A bishop? A church? It's the scriptures themselves making him wise. The whole passage, Paul is assuming because these are God-breathed and powerful, I trust Eunice and Lois and Timothy to open them up and become wise. The whole passage screams perspicuity. That the man of God, he needs the scriptures and now he's complete. Eunice and Lois, they needed the scriptures and now they're ready to teach their son. And never once does he say something like, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, but unfortunately you're not able to be wise because you don't have an infallible interpreter. Bummer. No, the scriptures make the man of God wise for salvation. Another argument that's often used against this is that it's ahistorical. That nobody believed this is how to interpret the text until the Reformation. For 1,500 years, for 1,500 years, nobody believed the scriptures were sufficient for salvation and for godliness. And the reformers just came and made this up. Well, we're going to fly through this. Uh, Church history can be a very difficult thing. It's really easy to proof text. It's really easy to find all these different ways of spinning stuff. You really don't know church history unless you've dove into it and exhaustively read the thousands and thousands of pages from our church fathers. So, uh, with, because of our time constraints here, I'm forced to proof text, which others are going to do. But let me just at least give you a taste of how this doctrine is obtainable in church history. This comes from a man named Cyril of Jerusalem who was writing in the 4th century, a long time ago, in regard to the divine and holy mysteries of the faith. Not the least part may be handed on without the Holy Scriptures. Do not be led astray by winning words and clever arguments. Even to me, who tell you these things, do not give ready belief to me unless you receive from the Holy Scriptures the proof of the things which I say. The salvation in which we believe is not proved from clever reasoning, but from the Holy Scriptures. That sounds a lot like sola scriptura to me. Here is Augustine. Augustine, who's considered the most influential theologian of Western history. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, says this, What more shall I teach you than what we have read in the apostles? For Holy Scripture fixes the rule of our doctrine, lest we dare to be wiser than we ought. Therefore, I should teach nothing to you except to expound to you the words of the teacher. And neither dare anyone agree with Catholic bishops if by chance they err in anything with the result that their opinion is against the canonical scriptures of God. If anyone preaches either concerning Christ or concerning his church or concerning any other matter which pertains to our faith and life, I will not say if we, but what Paul adds, if an angel from heaven should preach to you anything besides what you have received in the scriptures, in the law and the gospels, let him be anathema. Augustine sounds like he believes in Sola Scriptura. And just lastly, this is from Athanasius in the 4th century. For indeed, the holy and God-breathed scriptures are self-sufficient for the preaching of the truth. 
Athanasius, Augustine, Cyril, that sounds like sola scriptura to me. It can definitely be demonstrated this is not an ahistoric belief. What's also said is that Paul only had in mind the Old Testament here. Paul says the scriptures can make you wise for salvation, but those scriptures he's talking about, what did he say? Timothy, the ones you've been acquainted with since childhood. So he's not talking about the New Testament here. He's only talking about the Old Testament. What do we do with that? Number one, that proves too much. For even our opponents, that proves too much. Does, does Roman Catholicism really feel prepared to believe then that only the Old Testament is able to prove all of their doctrines and beliefs? Do you think you get praying to Mary from the Old Testament? It's proved a little too much for them now. You think Mormons, believing that you can become a god one day and inherit a planet and then use your children to populate that planet, you think they can prove that from the Old Testament? They can't prove them from the New. They especially can't prove them from the Old. So this, this proves far too much. But I want us to see that I, I think you can make the case that Paul here is, in fact, including New Testament writings. Because what does Paul say? First he says the, the, the scriptures that you've been acquainted with since childhood, and then he broadens it to all scripture. So there's a good reason to think he's added something to what he's done, and here's how I think we prove it. Turn to uh, 1 Peter, or forgive me, 2 Peter chapter 4. Second Peter chapter 4. This is a monumental verse. This is really important for us. Uh, let's look at verse uh, 15 and onward. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. Forgive me. 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. See? That was a test, and only Michael passed. I'm about to add new revelation to your Bibles, folks. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given in him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Now I want us to stop there for a minute. This isn't the point I want to get to, but it's an important point. Remember I talked earlier about the perspicuity of Scripture? Scripture is generally clear. This is a great verse for that. Because here's what this verse is reminding us of. Scripture is not equally clear across the board. To believe that is to deny the Scriptures. Because Peter himself admits that some of the things that our beloved brother Paul writes are what? Hard to understand. There's nothing wrong with looking at a Bible passage and saying, I don't get this, this is tough. Peter, an apostle, said the same thing. Sometimes Peter read the Bible and said, he read Paul and said, oh, I don't get this, this is tough. There are things that are hard to understand. And it's usually those difficult passages which are easy for people to manipulate because you don't even know what it means in the first place, so how can you refute them? So that's why Peter says, there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand and the wicked and unstable use that to their advantage. But what does that imply? When he says some things are hard to understand, what's the opposite of that? Most things aren't. <laughs> Most of it is generally clear, but some of it is hard. That's Peter's perspective. You don't need an infallible council, an infallible pope, an infallible... No, the scriptures are generally clear. Some of it's hard to understand. You need help with it. But generally, the scriptures are clear, and they're able to make you wise for salvation. But here's to the point. Notice what he says, that Paul writes things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other 
scriptures. How did the Apostle Peter view Paul's letters? With that sacred word, scripture. The Apostles knew what they were writing was scripture. So when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, Paul knows what I'm writing to you is God-breathed. That's why he told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians that I am so thankful for you because when we came and preached to you the word of God, you accepted it for what it was, not the word of men, but the word of God. The New Testament categorizes itself into that Old Testament category of scripture with a capital S. When Paul says all scripture is breathed, Paul definitely understands that his own writings are God-breathed. And then here's the last and final argument that's most often used is that the text does not say the Bible's sufficient. The text says the Bible's profitable. Right? What what does the text say? All scripture is what? Sufficient for reproof? For correction? For training in righteousness? No, the text says that it's profitable. So what should we take from that? Obviously, scripture's, it's helpful But there are lots of other things you could use. Scripture's profitable. It's beneficial, but not sufficient. That's not the word for sufficient. Well, here's where we get sufficiency. We don't get it from verse 15. We don't get it from verse 16. We primarily get it from verse 17. If the man of God has the scriptures, then the man of God is able to be complete, equipped for every good work. You can read any commentary in the word you want. That word there for equipped is the word exartizo. And all the commentaries will say this, made sufficiently useful for a task. The man of God is thoroughly equipped and he is sufficient now for his task. So here's an analogy. Let's say Marty were to go to a bike store to fix his bike. And in the bike store, they were to say, we have everything you need here to equip you to ride your bike. They don't use the word sufficient technically, but that's exactly what they're claiming. They're saying you don't need to go to any other store because if you come here, you will be thoroughly equipped for your task. They are claiming sufficiency. They're saying you you don't need to come to our store for the chain, but you need to go to that store for the bike. You don't need to come to our store for the helmet, but then you need to go to the... No, they're saying you can be thoroughly equipped for your task. Everything you need is here. Every good work, every bit of riding your bike, you are equipped here. That's called sufficiency. Paul tells Timothy that if you have the scriptures, every good work is now available to you. Every true theology is now available to you. You are equipped for every single good work, sufficiently, thoroughly equipped. That's sufficiency. The scriptures alone, by themselves, equip you sufficiently and thoroughly for everything you need. So I don't, it doesn't matter that the word profitable is at first used. Verse 17, Paul tells Timothy, the scriptures are sufficient to equip you for this task. That is why John Calvin said, he who knows how to use the scriptures properly is in want of nothing for salvation or a holy life. In conclusion, turn to Acts chapter 17. I just briefly mentioned Thessalonica. Paul went there and preached the word of God and the Thessalonians believed him and accepted his word. That's good. But then the book of Acts tells us that after that, they went down to this community known as Berea and Paul preached to the Bereans and they didn't accept his word very quickly. They were much more cautious. 
Look at what the text says in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more noble. So Luke, who's Paul's companion, is writing this, and Luke and Paul are telling us the Jews in Berea did something better than those in Thessalonica. Paul and Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so Luke, Paul, and the Holy Spirit all agree that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What made them more noble? They, they both ended up believing in the Word of God. What's more noble than that? Well, look at what Luke tells us. Verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Imagine that. The Apostle Paul, who's literally speaking the very words of God. When he gets to Berea, the Bereans say, hold on, hold on, Paul, hold on. We're listening to you, but we will not believe you until you prove it from the Bible first. And how does Paul respond? How dare you question the authority of God's Apostle? Question the inspiration of God's Apostle? No, Paul says, Paul and Luke together say they're more noble. Why are they more noble? Because even the Apostle Paul was held to the strict standard of sola scriptura. I'm not going to listen to Paul until it's proved in scripture. That was the Berean attitude. And that was before scripture was completed when there was oral revelation. So how much more do we at Redeemer Christian Fellowship need to be good Bereans today? When someone comes along and says they heard a voice from God, what should we say? I don't care what you think. Prove it from the Bible. When someone comes along and says, I've got an infallible pope, an infallible church, what should you say? I don't care what that doctrine is unless it can be proved from the Bible. We at Redeemer Christian Fellowship are called to be good Bereans now more than ever. That we will not accept something eagerly until we examine the scriptures daily to see if it's true. Sola Scriptura. Would you please stand? Father in heaven, we come to thank you for your word. We've come to thank you that you are not a silent God. You are not a God who has left us in the dark. But you are a God who miraculously, providentially breathed your words into our existence. And codified them. So that we can turn to them daily. That your very words, your very thoughts, your very character, your very desire and your will for our life can be carried around with us and put in shelves and in our backpacks. We are thankful for your word. And God, we are thank you, thankful for the men and women over these last 2,000 years who have literally lost their lives and their families to protect this word and to give us this word. We are thankful for their efforts to preserve your word. We're thankful for their efforts to translate your word. We're thankful for their efforts to publish your word. We are so blessed to live in this day and age we do. We have Bibles online. We have Bibles on our laps. Your, your word is everywhere. And we know that the church has suffered greatly to make that a reality. So we want to thank you for the courage of our brothers and sisters who we will one day embrace in the kingdom of God for all of their hard work to help provide these scriptures to us. And we are most, above all, thankful to you for giving us your word, for giving us light in the darkness that we might know you, that we might come to salvation through Christ to you, and that we might know all 
good things. Be equipped for every good work because of what you have given us in the Holy Scriptures. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.